Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require signs, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. All right, um, there is a bit of a change to how this is going to go. This semester is Daniel Part 1. It will be chapters 1 through 6. Brother Keith suggested it because, well, this is an extremely important book. And not only is it extremely important, but there's a ton of information in it that I was going to try and give to you in one semester. And um, that would have been a tall order. It would have been very difficult. Doable, but it's very difficult. And you would have missed a lot of good information because some chapters we would have to just fly through and some chapters we would have to, have to slow down and teach in a little more detail. For instance... Chapters 1 and 2 are extremely important. Chapter 1 gives you the the historical information, how we got here, why we're here. You're introduced to Daniel and uh, Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah and um, where they are, why they're there, all all that good info. And then from chapters 3 through, basically through 5, it's basically a recap of just historical information. There's not a lot of prophecy. There's, not a, there's a lot to learn in those chapters, but it's not, it's not as important as Daniel chapter 2, if you can say that, if you can put it that way. So we would have had to spend a lot of time on chapter 1, chapter 2. Chapter 1, because of the historical background that I need to give you to show you why we are where we are. Chapter 2, because it lays out prophetically the, the times, this is a term you need, to be, you need to remember very well, of the Gentiles. It lays out that image that basically tells you the history prophetically. <laughs> God tells you what the history of the world is going to be. So for us, it's history. For them, it was all prophecy. It was all looking forward. Even for us, part of it is, is still prophetic. Part of it has not been accomplished yet. When you get down to the ten toes and, and they represent ten kings that will eventually rule during the end times when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and smashes that image, that's all future looking. 
But the first four kingdoms have come and gone. All right, we're going to talk about it, but the first four kingdoms, they came, and then something caused a pause. Who can guess what that might have been? Anybody? The church age, exactly. During the Roman Empire, the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross. The, the, the emphasis is no longer on Israel. Now it's on the church. So you have this pause that, that stays until the church is taken away. When the church is taken away, the tribulation begins. Those ten kings are revealed. And then the Lord Jesus Christ, after seven years of tribulation, comes back and smashes Gentile powers. And the time of the Gentiles comes to an end. This is an extremely important chapter. Very important. And if you don't get this chapter straight, then the rest of your prophecy in Ezekiel, Zechariah, Revelation, it's all going to be fouled up. So it's extremely important. Then you get through chapters 3 through 5. It's more historical. Then you get to chapter 6. Chapter 6 is very important. Chapter 7 is very important. Chapter 8 is very important. Chapter 9 is probably one of the most important chapters in in all the Bible. It's it's comparable to chapter 2. Chapter 9, the the future prophecy of Israel and what's going to happen to Israel down the road. That's what comes up in chapter 9. And then chapters 10 through 12 go together. It's kind of one continuous um, narrative that all all builds on each other. So I was going to teach all that to you in one semester. (laughs) And we would have gotten through it, but your brains would have been smoking. (laughs) And my voice would be gone. But fortunately, Brother Keith, we were talking about it, and he, and he asked, why don't you break it up into two semesters? Well, that's up to you. If you can afford that, then that'd be fine. So now this will be Daniel part one, chapters one through six is what we're going to focus on this semester. All right? Now I've got a brief introduction, and then we're going to dive into chapter one, but we're not going to spend much time in chapter one probably today, because I need to give you the background, the historical background that caused us to arrive here at this point in time. Um, Let's just read verses 1 and 2. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Now, this is what's so amazing about this. And and one of the overwhelming uh, uh, ideas that every Christian needs to learn from this book. Who sent Judah into captivity? God did. Why? Disobedience. This is not only God's people. Who, who is Jesus called in Revelation? Lion of the tribe of what? This is Judah in captivity. Jesus Christ would come from this tribe. And the Lord's, because of their disobedience, and we're going to get into all that, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But because of their disobedience, the Lord, the Lord himself sent Babylon into, into Jerusalem, 
gave Jerusalem to him. They, they tried to fight back. There was a siege that lasted for a period of time, but there was no chance whatsoever that they were going to win. Because God told them, what you need to do is give up, walk out, and turn yourselves over to Babylon. Actually, what Jeremiah told them before that is, if you will repent right now as a nation, I will turn away my wrath. I will not send you into captivity. And in the book of Jeremiah, the only book in the Bible where you learn about pastors, they had lying pastors who told them, no, it's okay. God wouldn't. I mean, we are Judah. God wouldn't send us. We have Jerusalem. We have the temple. God would not send us into into captivity. That's not going to happen. Jeremiah said, you better stop listening to them. You better listen to God. God told me to tell you you're going into captivity if you do not repent. They refused to repent. God sent them into captivity. Jerusalem and the temple were burned to the ground. The temple where God's name rested. God said, I put my name there. That is representative of me. I'll burn it to the ground if you won't obey me and and live in accord with my word. That should terrify you. (laughs) All right, now, I'm not saying that God's going to do that to you or do that to us, but uh, God deals with nations a particular way. And if your nation will not follow the word of God, your nation is going to suffer the consequences of not following the word of God. You wonder why some nations rise and some nations fall? A lot of it has to do with either the Lord trying to accomplish some particular will or those people just... There there is no reason prophetically that America should have been one of the greatest, most powerful countries to ever live. Do you know what we attribute it to? They protect Israel, at least for now, and America sends millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars around the world for the gospel. They print Bibles, they translate Bibles, they send missionaries, they put up churches. America is funding the overwhelming majority of that. And when that ceases, when America doesn't protect Israel anymore, and half our nation doesn't want to anymore, and when America doesn't send out missionaries anymore, and only a tiny, tiny percentage of Americans actually go to Bible-believing churches that send out Bible-believing missionaries anymore. When that ceases, America will fall. We've already seen the fabric that the, the fabric of the character of our country turn hard, I mean, sharply towards paganism. And as long as America continues that direction and, and the churches die out and people don't go to church and they don't live in accord with the Word of God, it's, it's, it's going like, to be like Europe. It's going to be like Rome. When was the last time you heard about Rome going anywhere and doing anything? <laughs> it's, it's just a dead country. Is there time... I mean, they, they rose and they fell. And America would do exactly the same. If, if God has no use for that country, then what's the benefit of its rise? It's the same for Uganda. It's the same for Rwanda. It's the same for South Korea. It's the same for the Philippines. It, as long as you're going to be useful to God, then you, you, there's a good chance you could see some elevation in the world. Nationally. Right? That's, we're not talking about individuals. And you have to distinguish between that when you're studying the Bible You've got to look at things from a national perspective, an individual perspective, and then, of course, specifically the Jews and the church. God, God deals with each group in slightly different ways. And you might be subject to the consequences of one and not the other. A prime example is Daniel. Judah 
is going into captivity because of their sin. Well, what did Daniel do wrong? We're going to learn in this book he's a man of impeccable character who loved God and is willing to risk his life just to do what God... He won't eat the food. <laughs> I mean, what's the big deal? It's just food, right? No, there's a, we're going to find there's a connection between God's blessing and your, willing to, your willingness to control your body. And so as, as long as individually you're willing to serve God and live for God... It doesn't mean you're going to escape the consequences of a wicked nation. Judah decided to sin against God. God sent them into captivity. Daniel was among the first group to go. <laughs> and they made him a eunuch at about 20 years old. Everybody here know what that means? It means his body was physically altered with a knife. <laughs> He would never be married. He would never have a relationship with a woman. The rest of his life would be in service to Gentile kings. And yet God blessed him, gave him favor, gave him knowledge, gave him wisdom, helped him to understand visions. So so he's suffering the negative consequences of Judah's sin. And at the same time, God is greatly blessing him and elevating him in a Gentile nation. So do you see how that works? God's... God's dealing with a nation, but there's an individual who is a Jew who got dealt with a certain way or a specific way because nationally he's subject to the, to the sins of his nation. But God says individually, because you have stayed faithful to me, I'm going to take care of you. Doesn't mean he, was, he didn't experience some bad times. <laughs> he certainly did. But God gave him favor and wisdom and knowledge and, 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 and helped him to get through all these things. All right, I'm going to read a lot of this to you and then we'll... I'll write on the board what, I need, what, what needs to be written. Otherwise, just, just listen. Daniel was a man of impeccable character. Not only was he highly educated and highly skilled, but he was, an, he was of an excellent spirit. He was faithful to God and refused to be defiled. Daniel came to be uh, this type of man under the worst circumstances, proving that circumstances do not have the final say in who we are as individuals. He grew up under corrupt kings, though he may have been influenced by the great king Josiah. The southern kingdom of Judah, all right, does everybody know the difference between the two kingdoms of Israel? You have the nation of Israel, all right? This is the nation that God called out, that God separated, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? He gave them promised land, and, and he made these covenants with them. All, all these, they are benefits of all these, these realities because they are the chosen nation of God. Well, after Solomon's sin, the nation was split. And you had the northern kingdom, which was made up of ten tribes. And you had the southern kingdom, which is made up of two tribes. Those two being Judah and Benjamin. Did you know you were a tribe of Israel? Yes. You're supposed to be in captivity. What are you doing here? <laughs> All right, so, so the, this is who we're talking about. The, this, this southern kingdom is who went into captivity. Now, the northern kingdom, about 115 years prior went into captivity in Assyria. So they're already gone. 
All right? This is why, this is why the times of the Gentiles is so significant. The, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes in the north, they've already been taken. They've been gone for over 100 years. All you have left is the southern tribe of Judah. When they are taken, Gentiles rule the earth. The times of the Gentiles begin. That doesn't end until Jesus Christ comes back. So no matter what you do in, in the Middle East today, you, you can carve out a space and give it to Jews and call it Israel. No problem. That's great. It's a blessing. But that's not the Israel that God created. And the Israel that God created will not be there until, until the Lord. He's literally going to send out watchers and, and, and all these different people. They're going to bring Israel back to Jerusalem, back to Israel, the land that he gave them. And all that's going to coincide with the start of the tribulation and, and all those things. So none of that has happened yet. So you, you can, it's a nice gesture to create the, the nation and to give Israel this space. And, and it's part of what they've given them is part of the promised land that God originally gave them. But none of that is the fulfillment of prophecy. It's often taught as though it is, but it's not. Israel doesn't get, so, so the nation of Israel or th- that they call Israel today that's in the Middle East. Who controls them? The United Nations. If Israel does anything, they're immediately brought to the United Nations and has to explain themselves. Who makes up the United Nations? Gentiles. Who sent these Jews back into this place and called it Israel? Who who established that? England. Who's England? Gentiles. Until Jesus Christ comes back, the Jews are subject to Gentile power. It wasn't supposed to be that way. In fact, part of the, part of the, the, uh, the Lord's way of correcting all this is that Jesus Christ will reign in David's seat and Israel will reign over the nations. Right? That, that's how things are going to turn out. But right now, that's how things could have been if Israel would have just obeyed God and did what God said. But instead, they chose to defy God. They were sent into captivity, and so now they are subject to the Gentiles, people they hate. But that was their choice. What is your choice? Like it's, it's, it's easy, it's, it's fun to study the Bible and see, man, look how dumb these people are. Why are they doing this? Yeah, but why do you do what you do on a daily basis? Do you make decisions daily that please God and that, that demonstrate subjection and obedience to the Word of God? Or do you act like Israel while criticizing their stupidity in the Bible? (laughs) I want to be able to point out the dumb things people did in the Bible, but then I want to make sure that I'm not doing dumb things (laughs) as best I can. Lord, Lord, helping me. All right, so that's the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom of Judah was so corrupt that their God sent them into captivity, but... Daniel, amid Judah's corruption, refused to defile himself. Then he was taken captive due to national sin, in which he likely never participated. I highly doubt Daniel got to Babylon and decided to do right in Babylon. My guess is he had this character and this, this dedication to the Lord while in Judah, even while Judah as a nation, as a kingdom, was in defiance of God. You don't, 
You don't get thrown into hard situations and, and then become faithful. Not likely. I mean, I'm sure it may have happened not every now and then, but these four Hebrew boys, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, <laughs> Mishael, all them. If I asked any of you in here, what are their names? Would you say they're Babylonian names or would you say they're Hebrew names? Yeah. There's, for some reason, it, those are the ones that stick in our minds. All over the world. You ask somebody, who are those boys? They'll say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Not Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. <laughs> so, I doubt those four became godly when they got to Babylon. It, it may have, it's possible, but I doubt it. My guess is they were already faithful to God. And when they got to Babylon, God said, I can use these four because they are, they are faithful to me. And I'm going to use them in Babylon during this, in the midst of this horrible situation. All right? Uh, then taken captive to Babylon, he, he, he was and forced to become a eunuch and still refused to defile himself. While captive within a wicked Gentile nation, God's testimony of Daniel was that he was, he was of an excellent spirit. I wish God could say that about me. Uh, it's highly unlikely I'm anywhere near that list. But Daniel was said to be of an excellent spirit. That's what we should be striving for. He is a man whose life we should study and learn everything we can from and try to apply it. As a Christian, and if you are required to work a secular job, you should be considered the most honest, dependable, and hardworking employee. Too often, Christians expect to be treated special because they are a Christian. I've, had lots, I've met lots of Christians over the years who say, oh, I'm being mistreated at work. And what they mean by that is, instead of doing their job, they're nitpicking the way that people live and, and maybe trying to witness to them. But they're not paying you to witness to people. Okay, if you get an opportunity to witness at work, great. Praise the Lord. That's wonderful. But they're paying you to do the job they hired you to do, right? So when you're not doing that and instead you're sitting around telling people about Jesus, how do you think they're going to feel about your Jesus? I'm paying you to do this job. You accepted the job. You accepted the terms of the job. And instead of doing the job, instead of doing what I paid you to do, you are instead telling people about Jesus. Now, it's great that you have a desire to tell people about Jesus, but there's a time and a place to do that. And at work where people are paying you to do A, and instead you're doing B, that's, that's not the place. That's not the, that, they should look at you and say, this person shows up every day on time. They work hard. I don't have to check on them. I don't have to worry about them. I give them a task to do, and they do it to the best of their ability. I could just trust them and if they need anything, <laughs> I, I will give it to them. I don't, I don't want them to leave. Your, your employer should look at you as a prized possession, as a prized employee, because you show up, you do a great job, and they never have to check on you. You're honest. You're dependable. You have an excellent spirit. You don't show up late every day and, and leave early and sit around on your phone looking at Facebook or watching football or what, whatever it is you're into your boss should look at you and say, there's something special about that person. Then they'll come and ask you what that is. And now you have an open door to tell them about Jesus. Everybody get that? All right, good. So you're all looking at me like I'm crazy. 
All right, I can guarantee you that if you employ the character, honesty, and work ethic of Daniel, that, co- that company or business will fight to keep you working for them. It is also the greatest means of advancement available to everyone and anyone. Education is not the means of advancement. You go and get a high-level degree, and then after you get the degree, you can't get a job. <laughs> Why? Because you have no work experience. All you have is a piece of paper that said you learned some stuff. But if you go to a company start at the bottom and work the way that we just described, that company is going to elevate you and give you special, special privileges and pay and, and, and everything else that they would not give to the person that has the degree because they can depend on you and they can't depend on them. When it, back at our home church, young men would come and ask me and some of the other brothers, what, what do you think I should do? What college should I go to? You shouldn't go to college. You need to find a good company, beg them to give you an opportunity to scrub the toilets And be excellent at that so that they look at you and say, let's give them some more responsibility. Now let's give them more. Let's give them more. Let's give them more until the next thing you know, you're one of their top level engineers or the CEO and you never went to school. And it happens all the time to people who are willing to work. If you'll work hard and be diligent, timely and honest, you will prove to be unbelievably valuable and you will be an excellent testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. Daniel was highly educated. Education is good and needed. All right, now, this is not to be conflated with university. All right, if you have the means and ability to go to a university, great. There's nothing wrong with that. And more, it'd be nice if more Christians could, but we are entering a time in which university education is so ideologically driven that you can't go get an honest education anymore. Um, Instead, you're going to be indoctrinated. That's their goal. But you should do everything you can to learn everything you can. There are people in this world we will never be able to reach because we simply are not on their level from an educational perspective. The trouble we have today is that education is unbelievably dangerous and ideological. Universities have moved away from teaching and now work in the realm of propaganda. The best route today is to self-educate. Moving through the modern-day education system is dangerous, but you should refuse to remain ignorant. Learn, learn to read, learn to write, learn to speak. If you will learn to do those three things, it will make you an incredibly powerful human being. If you can read, write, and speak... If you can effectively convey your ideas and defend what you believe and what you know, people will leave you alone. You will be elevated in life. You will be thought highly of. It's, it's th- those three things are extremely powerful. So, in fact, the people who have changed history are people who re- read, write, and speak. Right? And so it's, it's extremely important that you, that you learn as much of that as you can or, or, or Apply yourself to that as best you can. Those three things alone will make you an unbelievably powerful individual. At a time when the collective knowledge of the world is available on the Internet, we have no excuse for remaining ignorant. Read, learn, and grow temporally and spiritually. God will bless it, and he may use it mightily. All right, so it's, that's what happened to Daniel. Daniel was, God gave Daniel this ability to, to learn and to grow and we're going to look at it. I'll go ahead and tell you now because I want you to look out for it. But this knowledge and wisdom that God gave Daniel, I believe, was connected to his willingness to control 
his body. Something as simple as saying, I'm not going to eat the king's meat. Now, if, if Daniel and, and the other three boys had no ability to control themselves, and God gave them this ability with knowledge and wisdom, that makes them dangerous. If you have no control over your body, you have no control over your appetites, you can't keep your eyes where they belong. You can't keep your hands where they belong. You can't, you can't focus on the things you're supposed to be focused on and do what you're supposed to be doing. And, and one, way you can, one way that you can test that is your diet. Do you just eat uncontrollably? Do you eat what you want, when you want, how you want? Or is there some discipline to it that, that, that demonstrates your willingness to keep your body under control? If you can't do that, then if you, if you, if you can't just say, I'm, I'm going to take what I eat and I'm going I'm to strip it down for the purposes of discipline, then how can God trust you with wisdom and knowledge? How could God elevate you to the second place in a kingdom? If God gives you this ability with wisdom and knowledge and, you're, and your flesh is out of control, you're going to become an incredibly dangerous individual that, that people should, be, should fear. That's what happens with all these dictators and all these men that, that, you know, that kill the people in their country, use and abuse the people in their country. They were, given, they were elevated to this place of power, and they have no control over themselves. You have a daughter. She's pretty. Good, I'll take her. You have sons. I'll take them too and force them to do what I want. They'll come back and kill you if I want them to. They have no control. Right? So if God gives you that type of ability and you have no, no willingness or ability to control this flesh, it, it, it ends up being a, a negative. It ends up being a negative. It ends up being a terrible blot in the world. <laughs> and so you, you don't want that. You don't want to be that. All right, I'm going to show you three simple outlines that are very similar. Um, I'm going to send the notes on WhatsApp, um, and so you can look at the more detailed outlines. I'm not, I'm not going to go through those right now because the book is, is really structured around these very simple outlines. All, right, all of them are divided in this way. The first section of the outline is Daniel 1 through 6. The second is Daniel 7 through 12. The book is literally, we're even going to look at it chronologically in a moment, at the chapters chronologically, and, and you're going to see this was more important than putting the book in chronological order. The book is completely out of order. Look at, um, look at Daniel 5 real fast. I'll show you, just so you get an idea of what I'm talking about. Daniel 5, and let's read verses 30 and 31. And that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain, and Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. Now look at chapter 6, verse 1, and it pleased who? Darius. All right, so end of chapter 5, Belshazzar is killed. Darius takes the kingdom. Beginning of chapter 6 and, and, and going down through chapter 6, Darius is organizing the kingdom that he just took over, right? Look at chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar. (laughs) 
So chapter 7 took place before chapter 5. <laughs> All right, so, so we're going to put it in chronological order. But, but there's a reason. The reason that this was so important, and that's why we're only going to look at these couple of divisions, is chapters 1 through 6 are primarily historical. And chapters 7 through 12 are primarily prophetic. Now, neither one is exclusive. Both have some history and both have some prophecy. But primarily, this is their emphasis. So chapters 1 through 6 deal with a lot of history. Even Nebuchadnezzar's image is primarily focused on on history. Um, With this, you could put in chapters 1 through 6, Judah's captivity. That's part of the historical events that you see that that take place there and and that work with all this. And then um, in the prophetic part are Daniel's visions. All right, so you have a couple of visions in 1 through 6, but it's Nebuchadnezzar. It's, It's not... It's Nebuchadnezzar, it's Belshazzar. They're, they're, they're the ones, or Belteshazzar, they're the ones seeing these things. And then, or no, Belshazzar is the son. Daniel is Belteshazzar. And so, but then you get to Daniel 7 through 12, and Daniel's having the visions. Right? And so, so then it's looking even further forward and more prophetic, though, again, some of it is, is part of a historical narrative. Um, in 1 through 6, Daniel is spoken of in the third person. You can ask Michael what that means. He'll tell you. (laughs) He can explain it later in a grammar class. And then in Daniel 7 through 12, he's spoken of in the first person. So while Daniel wrote the book, he's writing about himself in in chapters 1 through 6. But in chapters 7 through 12, he's writing out of his own mouth, from his own perspective. All right, and then there are two more outlines here that are far more detailed, um, and you can read those on your own time when I send this to you. All right, now we're going to look at these really fast. We're not going to write them. I'll write the word down. The key word to the book is dominion. You could also, you know, a secondary word, kingdom. One of God's primary focuses in the Bible is to establish his reign on earth. But from Adam until now, he's been trying to do that through men, and they fail. It just falls apart every time, as long as men are involved. Eventually, God himself is going to come back. And establish that kingdom. But dominion is passed back and forth. What did God say about Adam after he made them? What did he give them? Dominion. Dominion. But then who did Adam give that to? Satan. Satan. So then God brings, he, he comes and he floods the earth. He puts Noah on the earth. And then he gives Noah dominion. And Noah is, is given, this is the first, um, this is the first attempt at at. A, a national human government, and it fails. So God, God separates his people. He, he chose, chooses a nation. Now he's going to try national government. 
Israel is going to be given land. They're going to rule and reign with God if they'll be obedient to God. And they failed. The law, the law didn't do anything to establish the kingdom, though it did convict people of sin. So then Christ himself comes in his first coming. He dies on the cross. His dealings with the kingdom, national, human government, Israel, paused. It came to a halt. Right now, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to save as many souls as I can. And then I will return to that. When the church is taken away, I will return back to dominion and kingdom after the church is taken out of the way. So that's not, we're not here to build a kingdom. We're not here to establish dominion. We're here to preach the gospel, get as many people saved as we possibly can, teach as many people the Bible as we possibly can, and do all that before Jesus Christ comes back and smashes Gentile power and establishes his kingdom. Because once we're taken away, the gospel's done. There is, there is no more gospel. There is no preaching the gospel. Once the church is taken away, now you better make it to the end of the, of the tribulation. That's your option. Don't take the mark and make it to the end. If you can do that, then you get to go into the kingdom. <laughs> but this idea of becoming part of the body of Christ through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have that now. When the church is taken away, that is over. You get no more, there, there is no more, it, that didn't exist before Christ came. And once, he, once, once the tribulation starts, the church is taken out, it will no longer exist, will no longer be available to you. It's over. So you better preach the gospel while you can. Now look at Daniel 4.3. We'll read through these very quickly. We're going to look at the word, just look at the word dominion as it, as it comes. Daniel 4 verse 3. I'm not going to give any explanation on these. We don't have time for it. This is just part of the introduction, so we'll read them quickly and move on. How great are, are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Now, now what, what word did you just read there twice? Kingdom. All right. They're, they're, they're intimately connected. I'm going to try not to talk too much around that. We're just going to read these quickly and move on. But some of these are tempting to stop and talk about. But and his dominion is from generation to generation. Look at verse 22. Daniel 4, 22. It is thou, O king, that art grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown and reacheth unto heaven, and thy dominion to the end of the earth. God actually calls Nebuchadnezzar a king of kings. This Nebuchadnezzar is the start of, it's the first world empire. All right, what we know today as world empires, it started with Nebuchadnezzar. Then it was passed to the Medes and Persians. Then it was passed to Greece. Then it was passed to Rome, and then it stopped. So people always ask, well, what about America? What about England? They said the sun didn't set on England's empire. No, God's accounting of the kingdoms. They are directly related to that image. All right, where's, where's the one that says uh, the book of Daniel? Find the one that just says, oh, right here. All right, that image. So you have the head of gold, that is Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. You have the chest and arms of silver. That's the Medo-Persian Empire that came with Cyrus, began with Cyrus. All right, now I, I struggle with historical interpretations of the Bible, but it is a historical fact, and it's a biblical fact, 
that Cyrus took out Babylon. It is also a historical fact that Greece took out Persia. It's a historical fact that, that uh, Greece fell slowly over time and Rome immediately became the next world empire. Right? So, so that, that's just the way it, it fits so perfectly, it's hard to, to look at it any other, any other way. All right? Now, it was under the Roman Empire, the legs of iron, that the Lord Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. When he died on the cross, was buried, and rose from the dead, when did the New Testament, according to Hebrews 9, when does the New Testament begin? With the death of the testator. As soon as the testator dies, the New Testament begins. Then the testator rose from the dead, and now he sits in heaven working with his, his church to spread the gospel. He's not building a kingdom right now. He's, he doesn't care about world empires right now. The Gentiles rule and reign, but the English empire, the American empire, the Chinese empire, they're trying their best to make it an empire. <laughs> they're about to shatter as a country, but they're doing their best to try and and make it an empire, uh, none of that matters. Because right now is the church age. All right, now we go back to dealing with empires after the church is taken away. So whatever America does, whatever Germany does, whatever England does, whatever China does, whatever India does right now during this period, it's inconsequential. It means nothing until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and establishes his kingdom on earth then that's what we're looking for. Actually, before that, you're going to have these ten kings. All right? The Lord Je Jesus himself is going to come and smash those ten kings. And that will be the destruction, the final destruction of Gentile power. Sometime during the end of the tribulation. When, when the Lord himself returns. Okay, verse 30, chapter 4, verse 34. Daniel 4, verse 34. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. Now, again, I'm, I'm trying not to preach on this, but what did the... So think about what that just said. Look again back at verse 3. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now look, look again at verse um, 22. Look again at verse 22. This is about Nebuchadnezzar himself. It is thou, O king, that art grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown and reacheth unto heaven, and thy dominion to the end of what? All right, so God gave Nebuchadnezzar this great dominion, but it went to heaven and the end of the earth. But God's dominion is from everlasting to everlasting. So you look at what God gave Nebuchadnezzar, in comparison, it's this tiny little planet. <laughs> That lasted for a tiny amount of time compared to everlasting and everlasting. Now, which one do you want to follow? Which one do you want to be a part of? You want to find some king here on earth? You want to follow Bobby Wine in his kingdom? <laughs> or Museveni in his kingdom? Or God forbid, Joe Biden in his kingdom? <laughs> or even Donald Trump in his kingdom? Lord, help us. We're in trouble. 
When, when these are the people that you have to <laughs> rule over your country, you're in trouble. There's just, there's just not a lot of good options out there right now. Or you could follow the one who's, whose kingdom is from everlasting to everlasting. That's far better. And, and, far, and, and, is, and is worth our devotion and worth our time. Look at Daniel 6, verse 26. Verse 26, I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is a living God and steadfast forever. And so he goes on and on. He's, he's boasting about God there, which is, which is a good thing to do. Chapter 7, verse 6. After this, I beheld and lo, another like a leopard, which had, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads and dominion was given. To it. That's very interesting. Now you see the idea of dominion changing hands. It goes from one kingdom to another. We're going I'm, I'm to talk about that when we get there. Uh, look at verse 12. Chapter 7, verse 12. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away. All right? So do you, and this is, what the, this is what the book of Daniel is about. As we get into the times of the Gentiles... This is directly related to the kingdom of what? Heaven. The kingdom of heaven, what happens on earth. Now, by the time we get to John the Baptist, it suffereth violence. And the violent take it by force. This dominion is passed back and forth. Now, in, in, in terms of this image... That Nebuchadnezzar dreams about, God is passing it from, from kingdom to kingdom. After Rome, well, now the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and the violent take it by forth, force. Everybody see that? God says, I'm, I'm going I'm to take, take it from Babylon and I'm going to give it to, to Persia. I'm going to take it from Persia and I'm going to give it to Greece. I'm going to take it from Greece, and I'm going to give it to Rome. Well, who's alive in the Roman kingdom? First, John the Baptist, then Jesus. And the Lord said, during the time of John the Baptist, the kingdom of, the kingdom of heaven suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. So we went from God passing dominion from kingdom to kingdom to now, who's stronger? Who, who's got... Who's got the biggest guns right now? That's who has dominion. It's not a friendly thing. It's not, well, let's just all hold hands and love each other. No. There are people out there who want to kill you. Because of your skin color, because of your country, because of your religion. For any, any number of reasons, they would like to see you dead. You know how many people would love to see America die? And if they ever become strong enough, they will go and kill America. All right? And so, so that's where we are. The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. And until Jesus Christ comes back and takes Gentile dominion away, that's just how it's going to be. You can try to have peace in the Middle East all you want. And I hope there is. It'd be great. But that's... That's not where we are. That's not how it's going to go. 
You're not going to have peace in the Middle East until somebody. Uh, we just, we just a few, uh, last week, not this past Sunday, but Sunday before, I, I taught out of Matthew about going into a strong man's house. The Lord said, if the Lord said, the way you keep people from coming in your house is you have to be a strong man. That's where we are. That's, that's demonstrative of the kingdoms of this world right now. America's military, America spends the most on its military of any country by far. It's like $260 billion or something like that. The closest is China at like $120 billion. <laughs> it's not even close. Right now, America is the strong man. But some people want to come in our house. And our leadership is weak. And as long as it continues that way, if, if you're not a strong man, you're not going to keep, you can, whether you like Museveni or not, I, I, I don't care. President Museveni has kept people out of this country who wanted to come in and take this country. <laughs> he, he hasn't done everything right. We could sit here all night and probably talk, talk about mistakes he's made and things he shouldn't have done. But he's a strong man. And he's kept relative security in this country under his reign. Who's the next guy? And can he do that? Can he maintain that same level of security? We'll see. That's what you should be praying for. In fact, the Lord said, "What you, my disciples, you need to pray for the king and pray that they leave you alone and let you worship freely. Because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not altering Gentile power to give you what you want. Not right now. A day is coming when he will take all that down and he, and he will deal with it. But right now, we just pray and hope people leave us alone. And let us worship the Lord the way we want. Verse 14. Chapter 7, verse 14. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. You're only going to see that with reference to who? The Lord. Jesus Christ. He's going to come back. He's going to establish his throne. Now, notice it doesn't say he came back and he's fighting and he's hoping to gain dominion. <laughs> no. He's going to come back, and then he will have dominion. And In fact, we're in an interesting time. The Lord rose from the dead, and the Bible says that all power is given to Jesus, right? But he doesn't exercise that power. And it's not until Revelation 11 when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of, of God and his Christ. So he has the power. He has the ability but that's not what we're doing right now. Right now is the time of the Gentiles and the body of Christ. As long as the body of Christ is here, we hold off Satan, we hold off the devil, we win as many souls to Christ as we can, we teach the Bible as best we can, we do everything we can to bring people to the Lord Jesus Christ during this time period called the church age, and then when it comes to an end, he's going to take up that power. And, and it's, not, it's not, I'm going to try. It's not, I, I, I think I can do it. It's a done deal. When he says, son, it's time to go. Okay, I'm taking that power. And I'm taking those kingdoms. There, there will not be a, a, a battle and, and, we're, and we're waiting to see who's going to win. <laughs> right, right now in the world, there's a power struggle between America and China. And everyone's watching to see who's going who's to come out on top. 
Nobody knows. That is not the case with the Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes back, he's just going to (laughs) take it. And there will be nothing that anybody can do about it. So it would be good to be on his side (laughs) and obedient to him. Verse 26, chapter 7, verse 26. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy unto the end. And verse 27. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. All right, and this is, this is going through that, that battle that's going to take place at, towards the end of the, of, of the tribulation period. Um, verse, chapter 11, verse 3. Daniel eleven three, And a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. Verse 4. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven and not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion. Now, you see, if you keep reading, um, which he ruled for his kingdom. You see how connected these two words are? Kingdom and dominion. They're, They're intimately connected throughout this book. Almost every time the word dominion is mentioned, kingdom is mentioned also. Not, not every time, but, but just about. Um, verse 5. And the king of the south shall be strong, and one of his princes, and, and he shall be strong above him, and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. All right, so that's an important word, obviously, in the book. Daniel means God is my judge. That's what, what the name of Daniel actually means. God is my judge. But Babylon gave him a new name. And we'll talk about that. That's part of the process. They, 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 they take control of your country. They bring you in. Take you captive. Now you're going to learn what we tell you to learn. And that's just how it is. Daniel wrote this book while in Babylonian captivity. He was in Babylon. He was in captivity. Taken from Judah, he was among the first captives to go. We'll, we're going to look at the order of all that. And, and, and um, there were, if I remember correctly, there were, there were a series of three different captivities that took place. And that final captivity, they burned Jerusalem to the ground and, and made it desolate. Uh, Daniel was among the first group to go. The first group to go were of the king's seed. All right, and so the indication is that Daniel was either a prince or of the king's seed. Um, it doesn't say that expressly in the Bible. Uh, Josephus, who was a, a historian that Christians, he was a Jewish historian that worked for Rome, that Christians often highly rely on. He seems to indicate in his writings that Daniel was of the king's seed. Now, we, we don't have any biblical precedent of that other than that he was taken at the time when the princes and the king's seed were taken. So there's a good chance that he was. Um, Ezekiel also wrote while in Babylonian captivity, though he was taken captive sometime after Daniel. I believe it was about four years after Daniel. Um, you know, that's just, uh, I recall as studying this, that, that number, I think that it was four or five years, something like that, after Daniel was taken, Ezekiel was taken. 
When Daniel was taken, estimates say that he was anywhere from 16 to 20 years old. Most seem to lean towards the 20-year mark. He was about 20 years old when he was taken into Babylon. Now imagine if you were 20 years old, ripped from your family, taken into captivity, and then immediately made a eunuch. Would you be ready to serve God? I, I, I am so thankful. I am too weak to be tested in, in these types of ways. <laughs> I have had it easy, and I praise the Lord. Daniel went through three years of training and then quickly became highly important to the king. His service to these Gentile kings continued into the Medo-Persian period. Now, it was from the captivity began with Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. And then Persia took Babylon. When they took Babylon, they also assumed control of Judah. And that was done under King Cyrus. And in his first year, he made the decree to send them back to Jerusalem. Daniel, so, so from here to here is 70 years. Daniel was about 20 years when it started, and he, and he lasted over into the kingdom of Cyrus. He was, about, he was 90 years or older when he finally, finally died. He went through the entire captivity and and even further on into the Persian Empire. All right. If the book were in chronological order by chapter, it might be arranged like this. Everybody ready? If you want to write it down, now's your chance. If you don't want to write it down, it's, it's okay. It's up to you. Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 2, chapter 3, Chapter 4, chapter 7, comes after chapter 4. Chapter 8, chapter 5, comes after chapter 8. Chapter 9, chapter 6, and then 10, 11, and 12. That's the book in chronological order by chapter. Chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, which is related to the languages of the Chaldeans, which are the, the Chaldeans are the Babylonian people. It's a, a Semitic type of language. Um, those chapters are written in, in Aramaic, and it's interesting because, because those are the chapters that deal most expressly with those Gentile powers. So it's, it's very interesting. The rest of the book is in Hebrew. So when you hear people say, well, some of the Bible is written in Hebrew, some is written in Aramaic, some is written in, in Greek. Well, this is a section that was actually written in Aramaic, which is a Chaldean language, so far as we know. Now, one explanation for the arrangement of chapters refers us back to the outlines. The first half of the book deals with matters... Uh, that are more historical in nature, and the second half of the book deals with prophetic matters. It seems that the Lord was more interested in keeping the historical and prophetic grouped together. So that's why you have the the chronology out of order, 
and, and placed where they are, or at least that is the most reasonable explanation as to, to why that is. So, so the book, the first half of the book deals with the historical, second half deals with prophecy, primarily. It was not exclusive, so, so you can't say there's no prophecy in the first six chapters. There are, but that's not the primary focus. All right, that's, that's always important when you're studying the Bible, and it ends up causing a lot of division. If you try and say the first six are only dogmatically historical, well, Nebuchadnezzar's dream was prophecy. Like it's future to him. Right? So, so that's, that, that can't be, you can't, you can't put it in such a hard box. All right? So the primary focus is history. But then you get to chapters 7 through 12. Well, a major portion of that is historical. It already happened. <laughs> in fact, the reason it was, it was written is because it already took place. Though there, is a lot, there, there, there remains a lot of a future prophecy that's going to take, take place that, that comes out in those books. That's the primary focus but it's not exclusive. And you get guys that teach the Bible, and, and what happens is they, they become so dogmatic about little details like that that it becomes divisive. It's like, you're just, you're just characterizing the first six chapters of the book. Why do you want to argue over that? Right? And so if you just be intellectually honest and say, it's the primary focus, but it's not exclusive, well, that makes sense. Right? And to someone who's learning, they hear you say that, and then they start seeing that. Well, now it makes sense. But someone who's learning and you say dogmatically it's only historical. Well, how come these ten kingdoms for the ten toes haven't come yet? And how come this stone cut without hands hasn't come yet? It's because it's prophetic. It's future. All right, so the, the emphasis is historical. But it's not exclusively historical. All right, there is prophecy there. And so when, you, when you're intellectually honest in that way, especially with new people trying to learn the Bible, you help them to see the range that they should be learning from the, these books. Does that make sense? Good. All right. Um, the book of Daniel demonstrates a philosophy of history that is prophetic in nature. You will not get that in any history class <laughs> other than a Bible history class. <laughs> Who can tell you the history prophetically? Only God. I mean, if, if, God, if God came walking in here right now, he could give you the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years of the, the future of Uganda, and he can give it to you in such a way that it, you read it as though it's historical, as though it already happened. <laughs> well, that's what these guys got. That's what Daniel and, and Nebuchadnezzar, that's, that's what they ended up doing. Um, that's, that's, and that's, again, that's one of the major that's, that's foundational to the book of Daniel. God's given you the history of Gentile powers as well as that of the Jews in prophetic form, but written in a historical narrative. That's incredible. Any, if anybody else tried that, people would be like, you're, you're insane. There's something wrong with you. <laughs> Unless it came true, then they would say, well, but then they might not be alive to see that it came true. <laughs> so you have a little problem there. All right, so... Um, it not only records factual human history, but it prophesies of its occurrences before they happen. In this book, we see God resume control over the kingdom of heaven. Through the course of this revelation, Gentile powers likened under the image of a man from human eyes in, Nebuchadnezzar, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the image is great, powerful, and consists of precious metals. This is important. All right, so... 
And, and this is what we have to think about when we, when we start looking at this world and what it accomplishes and its kingdoms or its great men. Um, You've got to try and think about it from God's perspective. That's why it's so interesting to read the book of the Kings versus the book of the Chronicles. Because one is God's perspective in the Chronicles, and the book of the Kings is, is, is man's perspective. Well, when, when you have this image, and men look at it, when Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar see it, they think of greatness. This, this great image. They see power. You see gold and silver and iron and, and, and you know, all, all these, these incredible metals, right? In the latter visions, from God's perspective, the same Gentile powers appear as rabid beasts. <laughs> so man looks at it and they say, man, look at this great image. God said, you look like a bunch of dirty beasts. That's where you get the, the he-goat and, and the leopard. and so, so man, you know, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar are, are looking at this image and saying, wow, look, look at this, this, this great image. It's, it's so incredible. I mean, look, look at the guy that, that Larkin drew as he, as he tries to portray it. You know, this big, strong, strapping, gold, silver, brass. And then God comes along and says, so, so look at... Um, Look at the one that says the book of Daniel. And look here. These are the beasts that come later that represent this same image. But this is God's view of it. The one that says the book of Daniel. It doesn't have yellow on the back unless you're... It says here, the, the book of Daniel. They all have a title. And so, so you... Man looks at and sees this, this great beast. God looks and says, <laughs> you, look like, you look like a lion or a bear or a leopard or this weird creature with ten horns. That's what God sees. And so it's, it's, it's good to look at men and, and great men and look at what they've accomplished in this world. But you also need to be able to make sure you look at it from God's perspective because God may not be as impressed. <laughs> and man looks at the image and, wow, look at this great image. And then, <laughs> all right. The book possesses two great qualities. First, it provides a prophetic look at human history from the time of Nebuchadnezzar until the return of Jesus Christ. That's the time span of the book of Daniel. From Nebuchadnezzar until the return of Jesus Christ. All right. Second, it describes the excellent character and attitude of Daniel, a man we should all study and learn from as best we can. All right. Daniel chapter 1. That's the introduction. That's some introductory information. Now, a major portion of what we're about to talk about in Daniel chapter 1 is still going to be somewhat introductory. We're going to try and fit it into the verses so you can see kind of where, where all the information comes from. Now, we're about to look at a lot of information. And I want to get through as much as I can today and try to finish it by next class period. The way it's going to work out, we should be able to spend 
about two class periods on each chapter. But chapter one and chapter two are going to take up a lot of space, so they may overlap a little bit, but we'll see. So Daniel chapter one, verse one, let's just read the first verse. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. All right. So Jehoiakim is king of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem. Everybody see that? Now, why? All right, and that's that's what we're going to get to. We're going to go through a little bit more introductory information, but then that's, that's what we want to really focus on and talk about how we got here. All right? All right, so first of all, captivity. Israel, 10 tribes, the northern kingdom. In 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 23, we're not going to go read that. Israel... The northern kingdom is taken captive by Assyria. Let's look real quick at, related to that idea, turn to Jeremiah 19. Jeremiah is extremely important when it comes to the the captivity of Judah. It's highly relevant to the book of Daniel. In fact, a major section of the Old Testament. When it comes to Judah's captivity, you have... Jeremiah, you have Ezekiel, you have Daniel, you have um, Zephaniah, you have Haggai, you have Zechariah, you have Ezra, Nehemiah, um, Isaiah. All of this is related, related to Judah's captivity. That's a major section of your Old Testament. All right, so, so it's, it, it's all interconnected. You just have to be careful to seek it all out. Now, why did Assyria go, or why did uh, Israel go into Assyria? Look at Jeremiah 19, let's read verses 1 through 6. Thus saith the Lord, go and get a potter's earthen bottle, and take of the ancients of the people, and of the ancients of the priests, and go forth unto the valley of the son of Hinnon, which is by the entry of the east gate, and proclaim there the words that I shall tell thee. Verse 3. And say, hear ye, hear ye the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I bring evil upon this place, the which whosoever heareth his ears shall tingle. Because they have forsaken me, and have estranged this place, and have burned incense in, in it unto, the, unto other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers have known, nor the kings of Judah, and have filled this place with blood, with the blood of innocence." They have built also the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings unto Baal, which I commanded not, nor spake it. Now read this next line carefully. What does it say? So what did God just say there? You're burning your children to Baal? It never came into my mind that you would do that. God said, I never thought you would do that. Is that what it says? Nobody wants to answer. (laughs) All right. Nervous laughter. All right, verse 6. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that this place shall shall no more be called Tophet, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, 
but the valley of slaughter. Look at Jeremiah 32. We'll read verses 30 through 35. Verse 30, For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have only done evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have only provoked me to anger with the, with the work of their hands, saith the Lord. For this city hath been to me as a provocation of mine anger and, and of my fury from the day that they built it even unto this day, that I should remove it from before you, from before my face, because of all the evil of the children of Israel and of the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their princes, their priests, and their prophets, and the men of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they, and they have turned me to the back and not, not the face. Though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not hearkened to receive instruction." But they set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. Right? And this is where I often get in a lot of trouble. Because we, I'll include myself, do things that we know are against God's word in the name of Jesus. We participate in things that we know have nothing to do with God in the name of Jesus. That's exactly what they're doing here. We don't want to become useless or be sent away by God because we can't get rid of the things that we know we should not be participating in. You definitely don't want to do it in the name of Jesus Christ as though, as though he put his name on it. Verse 35, And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire Unto Molech, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my. All right, he said it twice that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. So twice God said, You did something I never thought you would do. You built altars to Baal and then threw your children in the fire. Why would you do that? And you did it, you did it, you've put these abominations in my house. Now, that's not the only reason. It continues, and and we'll we'll get into the actual reasons that Judah went into captivity. But this, God says, of, of Judah and Israel. Israel, and then you have Judah. Baal worship is, is why I'm turning my back on you. You don't want me. You want to worship Baal. All right. Now, this is what's so interesting, and, and we'll talk a little bit about it, not a whole lot, but this is, this is really interesting to think about. You know where Baal worship was essentially founded? Shinar. Do you know what great city is in Shinar? Babylon. So it's like God is saying, you want Babylon? Here you go. You're going. All right. Now, what about Judah? Look at 2 Chronicles 36. And we've read this in my classes before, but it's worth reading again. 2 Chronicles 36, and we'll see what Judah's issue was more specifically. We'll read verses um, 1 through 21 as quickly as we can. Let me see what time. Yeah, yeah, we got time. 
Then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah. Now, this is very important, this name. All right, Josiah. Josiah was possibly the greatest king to ever live. All right, so you had this series of evil kings, and then suddenly, suddenly Josiah, 2 Chronicles 36. Um, Josiah... So you had this series of evil kings who do that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Then you had this young boy, Josiah, come along. And in Josiah's time, the Bible says they found the book of the law. Think about that. They found the Bible. And he's like, oh, go read that to the people. (laughs) That's how bad things were. Josiah comes along. They begin reading the word of God to the people. This huge revival breaks out. Josiah moves the king, tears down these altars to Baal and, and, and just restores the kingdom to, to a fervency for God. But the previous kings had already so angered God that the Lord said, even the great things Josiah is doing, it's not enough. You're going into captivity. I, I have to deal with you. All right, and so, so Josiah comes along. Look, look back in verse, uh, look at verse 2. Jehoahaz was 20 and 3 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem, and the king of Egypt put him down at Jerusalem and condemned the land in an hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And the king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem and turned his name to Jehoiakim, that sound familiar? Where does that put us? The book of Daniel, chapter 1. All right, so, so this is what happened. You had, um, let me make sure I get this correct in my head. You have Jehoahaz, who is king. Jehoahaz is, is taken out by, by Pharaoh Necho. All right, that's the, the, the king of Egypt. Then he puts another man, he takes control of Judah. He basically tells Judah, you're going to give tribute to me. You belong to me now. They're basically taken as part of the, king, king of, the kingdom of Egypt. All right? And he tells them, you're going to pay tribute to me. You're going to do whatever I say. And he puts Jehoiakim in charge. We've got to get this M in here correctly because the next king, who knows what the next king's name is? Anybody? Jehoiakin <laughs> with an N, <laughs> not an M. All right, so he puts him in charge. Now, Pharaoh is, is feeling good about himself right now. He's feeling strong. So guess who he decides to take on? He decides he's going to go fight Babylon. It doesn't go well for him. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar sends him running back to Egypt, puts him in his place. And then guess who Nebuchadnezzar turns to? Jehoiakim gets moved from Pharaoh Necho. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar says, you belong to me now. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had him in chains. He had him in fetters. And was going to take the kingdom. But at this time, at this time, Nebuchadnezzar 
is not the top king in Babylon. His father is, which his name, I believe, I, 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 if I'm pronouncing it right without looking at it, is Placer. Anybody having kids? Be a good name. This little Nabo Placer. <laughs> now, when Nebuchadnezzar, so he's under his father, he, he's kind of like a co-regent. They're reigning together because his father's at the end of his life. Right? Nebuchadnezzar has control of the military. He's out carrying on these campaigns for his father. He, he takes out Pharaoh Necho and sends him running back to Egypt. He takes Jerusalem, puts Jehoiakim in fetters. He's about to march into the city and take the city. And he finds out his father died. So he returns Jehoiakim back to Jerusalem and says, You belong to me. You do what I say. You're under my control. But I got to go back and deal with this. So Nebuchadnezzar goes back to, to Babylon. He's crowned the king of Babylon. He's no longer co-regent or co-king with his father. He is the king. And then three years pass, and Jehoiakim decides to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) How do you think that went? Not well. Now, this first time, the first time that Nebuchadnezzar came and he took Jehoiakim and put him in fetters, and then returned him back to his position, and then went back to be crowned, he took with him Daniel, the Hebrew boys, and vessels from the house of God. This is, this is all part of Daniel 1. Daniel 1.1. 1, 1. All right? And we're going, to talk, we're going to review this multiple times, so, um, so you'll see it again. All right, let's finish reading this chapter, and then we'll take a break. Uh, Verse verse 3. And the king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem, and turned his name to Jehoiakim. And Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him to Egypt. Jehoiakim was twenty and five years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eleven years in Jerusalem, and he did that which was evil. This is such a terrible theme in the kings of Israel. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in fetters to carry him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and his abominations which he did and that which was found in him, Behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiakim, his son, reigned in his stead. All right, so a lot happened in those few verses right there that will be made more clear later. Everything I just explained to you happened in that little portion of Scripture. It's just God's given a concise history of what happened to Judah right now. He's not giving you all the details. He's just telling you this is why they went into captivity. Okay? All that that I just wrote to you, that I just explained to you took place right there between those few verses. All right? Now, verse 9. Jehoiakim was eight years old. How'd you like to reign at eight years? That was about how old Josiah was. Does anybody remember exactly how old he was? Was he eight or 12? He was eight. That's what I thought. 
And he did that which was right, did that which was good in the eyes of the Lord. All right, now, um, and he reigned three months and ten days <laughs> in Jerusalem, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And when the year was expired, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the goodly vessels of the house of the Lord, and made Zedekiah his brother king over Judah. Now, this is third or fourth king between Pharaoh and, <laughs> and Nebuchadnezzar over Judah. Uh, sent and brought him to Babylon and, and the goodly vessels. And he, and he made Zedekiah his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was one and twenty years old when he began to reign. And he reigned eleven years in Jerusalem. And he did that which was... You would think at some point somebody would say, maybe we should change things up here. <laughs> maybe we should try something different. There seems to be a, you know, a theme here. But this is human nature. This is what people do. I will not have this man to reign over me. I will do what I want to do. Okay. <laughs> that does come with consequences, you know. <laughs> so you do what you want, but it's good to obey God. Not only does it not make God angry, but it comes with an abundance of blessings. It is never good to disobey God. Not only does it make God angry, but the, the way of the transgressor is hard. You're making your life hard by disobeying God. But in, in our minds, we, we, we make ourselves think, that looks like it's fun. Yeah, there's fun in sin for a season. It's always fun in the beginning. It's when the consequences come around that you're like, oh, that's why God said don't do that. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have done that. That's what God told you before you set out in that direction. And we think, oh, God just doesn't want me to have fun. I just want to live a little. Is it really living to have diseases from, you know, sexually transmitted diseases? <laughs> Is it really living to have a broken home? Is it really living to be broken financially? Does any of that sound fun to you? <laughs> But see, you don't see that until you're way down that road. In the beginning, it looks fun. It feels good. It's exciting. But every step of the way, I'm planting a seed there, and I'm planting a seed there, and I'm planting a seed there, and I'm planting a seed there. And then you turn around, and all these crops have come up. <laughs> like, oh, where did this come from? <laughs> well, that's what you've been sowing. You're like, well, can I just not have this crop and have another one? <laughs> you could have not had this crop and have another one. But now you can't. Now you've got to deal with it. And it's unfortunate that people, that people do that and that they go that way. And then they're surprised when the consequences come in. And you will not escape the consequences. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Look, because, it didn't, because you didn't reap what you sowed today, when was the last time you planted a plant, a seed, and it, and it sprouted that day? It doesn't work that way. God is trying to tell you. You go that direction, 
It's going to have very serious consequences. You're not going to see them today, but you're going to see them. It's going to come. Don't fool yourself. Don't be deceived. So, maybe we'll get through this chapter. (laughs) Um, Let's come down to, look at verse 13. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart from turning unto the Lord God of Israel. Now, it's interesting. This submission to Nebuchadnezzar in that verse is equal to obedience to God. (laughs) You see that? He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against Nebuchadnezzar, and the Bible says, yeah, it was me he was turning from. Because I told Judah, submit to the, king of, to the king of Babylon. I told Judah, I, I, I'm, you're, you're going to reap judgment for what you've done. There, there's no going back at this point. Right now, what I need you to do is turn yourself over to the king of Babylon. I'm not doing it. Okay. That has consequences also. And, and you just keep going, you just keep stiffening your neck and hardening your heart, and you keep going further and further down that road and planting more and more of that seed, and then keep saying, why does this stupid plant keep coming up? Because you keep doing it. How do I get rid of this? Turn around. <laughs> Go the right way. It's amazing to watch people destroy their own lives and then wonder how they got there. It was decision after decision after decision, moving the wrong direction in disobedience to God. Then the crop sprouted up. All right. Now it's time to reap. Don't do that. God help us all not to do that. All right, verse 14. Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people. Man, can you imagine God saying that? All of them? Nobody? Nobody was willing to turn and do what God says. Now, we read the book of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Zephaniah and, and, and these prophets who prophesied before Babylonian captivity. There were a few, but it was a tiny, tiny remnant. A tiny remnant. That's what makes it so hard to try and do right. Because even amongst God's people, only a tiny number actually really want to do it. And so the pressure falls on those who want to do right from those who don't really care or are lethargic or are indifferent or maybe are just outright sinful. They're going to pressure those who want to go further in obedience to God to say, you're making us look bad. Can you just stop that? You don't have to pray every day. You don't have to read your Bible every day. You, don't, you, don't, you can come in and have a beer. It's okay. You don't always have to be completely honest. You can tell little lies here and there. It's okay. And so you, you come under this pressure to, to conform to what the rest of God's people are doing. And they get angry because you want to go further for God, and they want to, but, but we're in a real comfortable spot right here. Why don't you just come hang out with us right here? No. 
No, I'm not okay with that. And it's going to get you in trouble with God's people. <laughs> if you want to go further and remove more paganism and, and, and more sin and you want to be more godly, God's own people are going to, are going to turn around and rebuke you. Now, you need to do it with a, with, with a Daniel-like spirit. Be kind. Be respectful. But you should go as far as you can to serve God even though a good number of people are not going to be willing to go with you. You look at Daniel, and you look at Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, God blessed them in pagan captivity because they served God when they were in Judah, and Judah didn't want to, and they served God in Babylon when nobody wanted to. Where are the rest of the Jews? Why are we reading about four young men? What did the rest of them do? You know, the food is pretty good. <clears throat> sure, it doesn't match God's dietary laws, but, you know, it's pretty good. <laughs> you know, if I bow to this statue, and this is a common one in different terms today, I'm not actually worshiping it. I'm just, the king said to bow, so I'm just going to bow. I'm not worshiping the statue. Well, Hananiah didn't bow. What are you going to do? Okay, let's read the rest of this very quickly. We've got just a few minutes before the break. Um, I don't remember where I left off again, but 15. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misuse his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people. What does that next line say? That should make you fear and tremble. God said these people came to a point. There is no other remedy. I have to, I have to burn Jerusalem to the ground destroy my own temple, and send my people. Isn't that what it said? Against his own people into captivity. You know what Judah is thinking? We belong to God. Nothing would ever happen to us. You know what God is saying? I'm about to send my people into captivity because of their disobedience. Because there is no other remedy. My spirit will not always strive with man. You can bring God to a point that he says, either you individually, you nationally, or the world as a whole, I'm about to clean this mess up. He did it in Genesis and Noah's day. He did it to Israel and sent them into Assyria. And he's doing it right now to Judah in our passage What would he do to me and you if we just refused to do what God says? What's he going to do to the church if it doesn't get itself together? What's he going to do to Uganda if there are no servants of Jesus Christ here? You can watch in real time what's happening to America. America went from a country founded, a, a great nation founded on biblical principle. It was never Christian but, but the character of America was built upon biblical principle. 
And they turned away from it and turned away from it and turned away from it until now the character of America is the deepest confusion you could ever imagine. You don't know what a man is. You don't know what a woman is. How did you get there? And God forbid, what's next? If there's not some sort of revival or turn back to the truth, what in the world comes next? I don't want to see it. I, 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 hope, I hope there's a turn, but it's not looking hopeful. All right, now let's read the, down to verse 21. Therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion upon young man or maiden, old man or him that stooped for age. He gave the, them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burnt the house of God and break down the wall of Jerusalem and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her what? It's, that's another reason. We're going to look specifically at the reasons why they went into captivity. They continually violated God's Sabbaths. God said, 70 years will make up for your violation of my Sabbaths. And, and we'll look at that specifically in, in when we come back. To fulfill threescore and ten years. How long is threescore and ten years? Seventy years. All right. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.